A handful of intriguing names enter the fray as Guardians' managerial candidates. What can we learn from this World Series matchup? All that and more with friend of the show, Travis Sawchick. You are listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Fly ball, deep right field. Back is Spencer at the one and two. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. Or, depending on who you listen to, the best guest we've ever had on this show. I'm so excited to welcome him back as you will see. No Zach today. He's busy gearing up for, I don't know, some managerial search. Apparently, they're getting close here, reportedly. And so I thought it'd be a great time to welcome in a man that has been requested heavily in our own Discord. Travis Sawchick, friend of the show, and you can read him on the score. Travis, welcome back, buddy. It's a truly a pleasure to have you. Great to be back with you, TJ. And uh, it's good that Zach isn't here because he beat me in our fantasy football matchup this week. So, yeah, so apparently- I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, Zach had mentioned that you weren't going to be welcome on any future show if you beat him. Well, I guess I guess it turned out for the best then. That, I, <laughs> that uh, Brandon Ayuk didn't come through on Monday Night Football. <laughs> Apologies for that. Well, do I, I do welcome you back. I'm happy to have you back. We have some great conversations on the show, and I thought it'd be a perfect time to actually have you back with so much happening in the big baseball picture with the World Series and, of course, Guardians zeroing in on their manager. Let's start there with the Guardians and, and their managerial search, because as I mentioned in the intro, there are a few names here that more than we had gotten previously. I had said, Travis, that this was like the the quietest manager search to the, to that point that I had said that, I think, at, at this point last week, because we had gotten some names. There was Mendoza, the Yankees bench coach. There was Albernaz, the Giants bullpen coach, and a little bit of rumblings of John McDonald, and that was basically it. And this is coming from a team that had said that they had 45 in, internal and external candidates to sift through. And I'm thinking, we haven't gotten anything. There's nobody publicly that has been linked to this organization. Other than those handful of names, it's, it kind of got weird to think that way. But now we do have some more names. We, we have reports of Andy Green uh, lining up for an interview. We have Clayton McCullough, who apparently the first base coach of the Dodgers has gotten some interest. We've, we've even seen Stephen Vogt of... Uh, the former big league catcher who, as I was looking into more, kind of seemed like a very interesting candidate to be a manager, if not in Cleveland, maybe somewhere. And then yesterday, more reports coming out from The Athletic of Craig Council potentially being in the mix. So it's gotten a lot more interesting, and I think we're getting close. Maybe even by this point next week, we will know who the Guardian's manager is. From your perspective, Travis, what makes for a good manager these days? Because there's so much, you know, it's it's not the managed by the gut that former managers once did. It, there's a lot of data. There's a lot of sitting down and having meetings in advance, going over many different scenarios. And, and I question, how much does a manager actually have his fingers on the the individual in-game decisions? How much of that is just him? And how much of that is the collaboration of 20 different people before it ever gets to that point? What do you think is important in a big league manager these days? Yeah, it's a great question. And it really is, you know, we looking in from the the outside and not being part of those meetings. And it's tough to unpack uh, any manager's really 
involvement in the ultimate decision. They are pulling the, they are going to the mound. They are, they are doing that. But how much input do they have pregame? Uh, I do think you want a manager who understands, I mean, I, in, in the year of, in the year 2023, you want a manager who uh, appreciates analytics and who understands probability, uh, you know, third time through a lineup, all that good stuff. So I think that is a baseline expectation. But, you know, reading a spreadsheet really isn't that difficult. They don't have to be computer scientists. They are getting the information. So I don't, I don't know that uh, absorbing it's important, but I think that's sort of a baseline expectation. And I, I think Rob, like in Philadelphia, I think Rob Thompson has done a really interesting job the last two postseasons and sort of, it seems to me anyway, that he understands his players well. Uh, I was trying to think of the recent uh, uh, with Ranger Suarez. He had a they had decided he wasn't going to go deep into that wild card start, and he was making a decision. Well, should I tell him beforehand, or should I, you know, just surprise him and have him think he's doing his normal <laughs> normal outing? And he decided surprising. not. He decided <laughs> not to tell him because he was worried he would pitch differently. Like he would empty the tank. He wouldn't be himself. So Suarez was upset getting pulled. But, you know, he pitched well. They ended up, I think it was a shutout. Uh, six combined relievers helped shut out the Marlins. Uh, but it's interesting, even after the game, uh, Ranger told reporters that, yeah, I think it was the right call because I probably would have pitched differently. I would have been trying to empty the tank. You know, who knows? Maybe he would have been even better emptying the tank early. I, I don't know. But I thought, you know, the psychology of of that decision was interesting. He... And when Thompson replaced Girardi last year, he decided to do things like he would send the lineup to players the uh, the day before games, the night of, so they knew if they're in the lineup and where they were in the lineup, so they weren't. Because when I was a beat writer I in Pittsburgh, I, there were occasions when players would show up, look at the lineup card, and they weren't happy. And I even on occasion saw uh, them going to the manager's office and <laughs> not be thrilled about it. And you can imagine... Uh, if you are anxious about your position, having to sleep on it for a night or be worried about it, sure. probably, you're probably not in the best performance mindset. So I I do, I mean, I think that's a long-winded way of going into that clubhouse, understand the clubhouse, being a good clubhouse, having a good feel for it. I do think that matters. So in the interview process, or even in just looking at past decisions, I think uh, do managers seem to understand people well, combined with understanding of uh Yes, if this pitcher should come out before facing a third time, he will execute that and he will do it. Uh, and I, uh, I think they're looking for. And ideally, I think an ex-player always helps because players know, you know, he's been in my shoes. He understands it too. So, uh, like I, I think a Craig Council. I don't. I don't know how realistic that is, but he would be. I think he would check a lot of those boxes, uh, and he has the experience and track record. So that. That's a little helpful too, and not going with the complete unknown. Uh, whether you could outbid the Mets for anyone, I don't. I don't know about <laughs> yeah. that. But are they just handing sort of... a blank check? <laughs> you fill it in. <laughs> and I do have to think that uh, going back to the clubhouse part, create an environment where people want to show up and work too. Like I do think that's one thing Francona did well in Cleveland. Is players, at least when I was around the team, they generally seemed uh, happy to. <laughs> it was a good vibe and it seemed like they had a lot of input in when they were playing and whatnot maybe too much uh but i also think he had some short fallings like in 
was it the you know game four of the uh, the Yankees series in the playoffs last year where Class A doesn't come into the game until they're trailing by four runs late. I thought that was a total mismanagement of of your best pitchers available that day. So I think there's there's some areas to improve upon too that you know they can uh, extract a few more wins next year by just making some better. Think lineup choices and in-game decisions. So that's my really rambling response to. <laughs> oh, well, we got so much more ramblings to get into. <laughs> trust me. I want to get into to Council in particular. What maybe makes him the most sought after, if not the best manager in baseball? There's a conversation for that. Maybe him and Kevin Cash. They feel like they're, they're neck and neck for who could be the best of the maybe at least the new school managers, taking out some of the the guys that have been around the game for a very long time. You mentioned the, the coming into the, the clubhouse and knowing the lineup aspect, and that was something that Tito talked about years and years ago. In, in fact, when, when Brad Mills was the, the bench coach, they used to sit down every single night and they would bring in different lineups and different ideas and they would, they would figure out what it is days in advance sometimes. So not only that the regular players knew, but also the bench players could better prepare for a day that they knew that they were going to be in the lineup. Or even if it is a regular that plays a lot, is there some benefit from not only are you getting a day off, but mentally you come in, you've, you've already gotten that few hours in the morning to just better prepare yourself for a full day off. He just always looked at that communication as a positive, and certainly you want to continue that. We had had a conversation several weeks ago. That just imagine how much better prepared this Guardians front office is to make this decision having gone through 11 years of Terry Francona, and they know everything that they, they've seen it up close they know what they are seeking in a manager and so when they go through this this process they have they have seen exactly what they want and not that they want another tito clone but they can take all of those elements and say these are the, the sorts of things that we thought made a huge difference are you prepared to do that do you agree with doing it this way and i just feel like compared to the pre-francona days or maybe even going back as far as manny acta when they were having those interviews many years ago, they have to know so much more about what they crave out of that position, having had Terry Francona in those shoes for so long. Yeah, that's a great point. They uh, they know exactly what worked well there and what they valued, and there's probably some things that they uh, that they might want to improve on and in, say in game decision making that sort of thing. I don't know, but to your point, yeah, they have a great track record there of of uh, what they think works in that pregame preparation, the lineups, managing the clubhouse. So they'll have a better feel of who can, like as to what you said, not a Francona clone, but who can replicate some of those important uh, kind of softer science factors, I guess, and and preparing guys and getting the most out of them. Because I do, I do think that matters. And I think any of us in any line of work can relate to being comfortable when you show up to work and being uncomfortable. And I do think that that matters. Even even like how well are you sleeping the night before you show up, you know? Uh, and I think the one other thing is the player development side. Are they are the managers themselves open-minded to, I think many are today, but are they open-minded to the best uh, practices from, uh, you know, training regimens or training technology that get guys ready, the more game-like practice that we see the Texas Rangers doing and uh other clubs like San Francisco Giants were renowned for doing it well a few years, Tampa Bay Rays. So are they going to surround themselves with you know, coaches who uh, are going to employ these practices and get the most out of guys too? Because I think that's, you want to have the the right offensive and defensive coordinators around you too. 
uh, and the best training tools. And I know the guardians are already well invested in that, but it doesn't hurt to have uh, you know a like-minded manager who's on top of that every day too uh, with his staff. I also like a guy that has enough confidence in himself that he can listen to others, take others' input and not feel like if somebody has a suggestion that it's not a uh, an indictment on the way that they believe that other person is managing. It's No, it's a collaborative atmosphere that this team really thrived in. And at times it got sickening to hear them talk about it being a collaboration as much as they did. But that's really how they came to a decision. And even when it came to like the younger player aspect or the veteran player aspect, I think a lot of people, and I've we've tried to, to stress this on the show, it wasn't always just a Terry Francona, no, we're only going with the veterans sort of, of thing. If the front office felt like we need to play this player and they said this is something we need to do as an organization, I really believe Terry Francona would would take that and, and likely implement it. So a lot of those decisions, maybe it wasn't always what the front office wanted to do, but there was always an element of the entire team coming to that decision, even if it meant Carlos Gonzalez in the cleanup spot for a team that you know, <laughs> felt like they were going to compete. Uh, so I think it's important to have that in a manager, certainly someone that can collaborate and communicate, as you said. But another thing that I, the one downside of someone that hasn't been in a position of being a manager before, are they willing to also collaborate, but also hold true to what they believe? And I think it's important to to come in with, and maybe this is a case with, with counsel, because he, he has a previous track record. He knows and has seen up close what works for him. And I don't want somebody that is just going to sit in that chair and just be a yes man. And just, front office wants to do this. I, I worried with Manny Acta that there was too much of that. Just, yeah, we're going to do what the front office wants and I'm never going to push back. Maybe that's unfair. I don't know. Maybe there was some pushback on, on Manny Acta. But I like someone that is going to challenge the front office at times and make them think about the decisions that they they come to. Even if it's like Zach and I will sometimes have conversations and we'll just play devil's advocate because I just want you to, to defend your point. Tell me why you believe what you believe. And I think it's important to have a manager that is confident in themselves in that way, too, that sometimes it is important to have those ideas challenged because it reinforces why do why are we doing this the way that we are doing it? And, and sometimes having that outside opinion it just proves to be beneficial, I think. And that, that is important. We, we stressed that when we began this a month ago, talking about what matters in a, in a manager. That's another great point. And, um, if you're, and if you're going with a younger first-time manager, you will run into more of that yes-man risk, I think, where they're going to be less willing to state a position uh, that runs contrary to what the senior front office folks want, that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, that is... That's another argument for having a more experienced voice there. And uh, it would be interesting to go from someone with so much managerial experience, uh, former player, and to someone very inexperienced in a first-time role with a team that uh, has you know, maybe not Dodgers-like expectations, but isn't in a position where they're you know, uh, not trying to compete next year either. So that that's an interesting point. And yeah, I I would have loved to to known like the Rosario Wars that were played out <laughs> the, the fan base. What were the Rosario Wars like in the meetings? Like, was everyone on board with Rosario playing every day and batting second, or how did Francona, you know, how did he advocate for that? And uh, I guess he's ultimately filling out the lineup card, but how did he win that right. debate? So that would be really interesting to know. Uh, 
how how those conversations played well, out. You know, it's interesting, Travis, because we always just assume he was always on the side of the veteran. But there were cases, some known, some not known. We haven't even discussed. But there were times where I knew Zach has known that he actually wanted to play or call up a younger player. And he was met with resistance, one of them being Bo Naylor. He wanted Bo Naylor up here weeks before they actually made that call. But they decided, they, as a collaboration, they wanted to stick with Mike Zanino a little bit longer, give him time. I don't know if it was buying into what a projection before the season began said about playing Zanino over Bo Naylor, whatever the case may be. I never felt like it was a black and white thing. Were there? Would, did Tito have his guys? Yes. Did he play some of them way too much? Yes. Like we go back to the Mike Avila's playing center field days. Yes, those those things definitely happened. But I don't think it was always a case of, no, he Tito was always on the side of the veteran and the front office was always on the side of the younger player. I don't think that was always the case. Yeah, no, that's I don't want to fall into the uh, veteran manager, veteran player kind of uh, decision making. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's just the role of manager is really if. I feel like the public and even, you know, we just don't understand its value like we do maybe with an NFL head coach or where he's putting a system out there and you see the play calls and you can even measure the the success of that to some degree. There's a lot more, and it's a much smaller sample of games where MLB has this unique grind to it. It's just, there's a lot that goes into it that is immeasurable. And uh, I don't believe we can measure every, we can count everything that counts not everything that is important is measurable so uh i do think some of these uh for lack of a better term like the softer science side of it does matter how much (laughs) i don't know Uh, but it's it's gonna be an interesting uh search because i do think it is an attractive place to manage you have a front office that has a lot of continuity that uh had a lot of continuity with a manager that's developed has a great track record on the pitching development side and uh, a, a very healthy for its market size, a tradition of winning over the last 30 years. So, uh, you know, like with a council, I have no idea. Can you outbid the Mets, that sort of thing? But I do think it is an attractive, attractive job for whoever ultimately fills it. Now, the Mets are this completely different animal because even you know, there, for many years it was, oh, some someone from a big market could always outspend the smaller market, but the Mets have taken it to a new level where they're doing some <laughs> some zany things and the, the ownership there doesn't seem to care. Sure, blank check, we don't, we don't mind. But the thing that makes this interesting, if it is a bidding war between the Mets and Guardians for council services, let's say, the Guardians at least, for as much as we can point to their payroll and say, they're, they're never going to bid for a top free agent, They've been paying Terry Francona like one of the best managers in baseball. It's not like he took a massive pay cut to be here in Cleveland. And so they were already spending in that upper echelon for managers in baseball. That, to me, at least, it makes it more of a tangible thing that I could actually see happening unless the Mets completely blow it up and decide, no, 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 we're going to go into $10, $15 million or something wild for, you know, manager, whatever it is. Yeah, it's also a different lifestyle. Uh, choice. Do you want to live in the largest media market and all the everything good and bad that comes with managing in New York? Or do you want something more like Milwaukee in Cleveland? Uh, and in Cleveland, you can always live downtown and ride your scooter into the ballpark too, which you can't, it's not really possible in Milwaukee. Uh, I don't think. <laughs> what does council take? take? What, what does he, what does he take to the ballpark? <laughs> I assume uh, it's, uh, I don't know. Miller Park is strange or American life, uh, Whatever, whatever the name of the facility is now, because it's not far from downtown, 
But you do have to commute there because it's surrounded by parking lots and off yeah. the highway. So I assume he drives <laughs> kind uh, of stri- a, a luxury automobile. Know, strikes me as a, a razor scooter kind of guy. <laughs> I don't know. Just see him going down. But with the wheels that light up as you go faster, I think that that could be Craig Council. He could do it here. Yeah, he could do it here. <laughs> now, what do you think about, I could send Zach the photo. <laughs> My joke to him was, first glimpse of the potential Guardians man, uh, managerial staff. And it was the picture of Council jumping up in the air with Sandy Alomar walking off the field of Game 7 of the 97 World Series and my much younger self feeling pain as I sent that tweet or that text to him. The the dynamic, because we've always just assumed Sandy Alomar is still going to be here. Could we see a staff of Sandy Alomar and Craig Council? Could Sandy stomach that being next to the every <laughs> single day, the guy that stomped all over home plate in Game 7? That's kind of painful. Yeah. I mean, Council really owes the city to come back here and... Uh... And this terrible, <laughs> terrible drought. So, yeah, he really, there'd be some sort of, uh, yeah, there'd be some good karma, maybe. Reverse karma? Yeah. Something like that, coming back here. And, uh, yeah, what's, how much would he change his staff or any, that'll be interesting to, to follow. Yeah. The hitting side of things, like they just made changes there. Are they going to stick with that? Or does, would he have other ideas? And we're talking like, it's a foregone conclusion that he's coming here. It could be... Any one of these candidates might want to bring in their own people, and you have to you have to listen to that because, as you said, you want them to be comfortable as well in, in their workplace and have be surrounded by people that they trust and not only yes men in the dugout as far as the manager, you don't want yes men to be your assistant coaches either. You want pushback and guys that are going to make you think outside the box as well. But I thought it was interesting. You mentioned other sports. That is also part of what makes assessing a manager search difficult for us to talk about because when the Browns are looking for a coach every five minutes, they're looking at offensive coordinators of this team. And you can look at the offense that they ran, right? And think, would that fit in Cleveland? Or you think of a defensive coach and a mentality. Does that fit? There are, there's a track record of what that coach does, right? I can't tell you other than hearing great things about what the giants are doing behind the scenes to prepare their players. I don't know what the bullpen coach in for the San Francisco Giants, their philosophy on anything is, right? Or the bench coach with the Yankees or a first base coach with the Dodge. I don't know anything about what their philosophy is. So I, to some degree, knowing that this front office has gone through 11 years of Terry Francona, I don't, because it's boring to just say, I trust them to make the right call, but I do at least trust them. I give them enough of a, a lifeline here to make that call and, assume that they're making the right decision because as someone had had tweeted me several days ago who do I want and I'm not smart enough to know Travis I'm not smart (laughs) enough to be able to decipher and and differentiate between any of these candidates yeah I just uh well hopefully they don't hire someone with like a sacrifice bunting philosophy (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they'll do that uh so at least embrace you know the most realistic the the highest probability scoring events and decisions. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it is, there's less known in these decisions. We don't, you don't know their philosophies. Uh, you know, I think you know, it's, man, again, going back to, we don't know how they really manage the clubhouse and those interactions behind closed doors for from the middle of February to the end of the season. So I think that matters more in the, the nature of the game. Uh, so there's a lot of just more unknown to it and, I, I think they'll have a great process. It's it's a, the front office has a bunch of smart and experienced experienced folks in it. But like any decision, there's no 100% certainty that it'll work out. 
you're probably, uh, it's probably more like, you know, hopefully they have a 60% success rate or something like that, because we've seen managers with much shorter tenures here that didn't quite work out. So yeah, it is, uh, yeah, I don't, like, I couldn't tell you who the best choice is either. Uh, but I, I think you do have to have some level of trust that this leadership group will, will not make a bad decision. And sometimes the, you don't even know that the manager is great until they demonstrate greatness or they <laughs> they are sort of off the radar and you don't think about them. Yeah, sure, they've been in the minor leagues for a long time managing. But, you know, Tori Lovello, who's that? Oh, he's just the World Series managing <laughs> guy for the Diamondbacks. So it, it's managing or uh, looking at managers and assessing them, it, it always comes back to the you never are sure how much credit to give them in the positive and how much credit to subtract when things go wrong. I never know how to assess it. And we just look back and we just, well, who are the best teams? Well, those must be the best managers. I don't know. Maybe. I know. It's like the <laughs> writer award voting on managers. Uh, you know, it's like who, how do you even begin to accurately assess that question? Because so much of it is out of their control, the roster build, uh, financial constraints. There's so much they don't control compared to other sports. Uh, yeah, I, and they're also public relations. They're the only coaches in North America who speak to the media twice a day, essentially for, you know, six months. <laughs> they have to explain all the decisions. They're um, the face of the organization. Every decision, they're the face of it, whether they agree with it or not. And I, there is some, there's some value into how you communicate that. Uh, most Cleveland, uh, Francona managed it really well. Like I think most of the media really liked him and most of the fans really liked him. And I think that helps soften bad times and uh, unpopular decisions too at, at times. So yeah, there's a PR element that doesn't quite exist in other sports too, where I, NFL coaches, some of them, <laughs> I mean, imagine Bill Belichick speaking twice a day to the media for six months. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that would go real well. He already loves the <laughs> the daily grind of it as it is. So Diamondbacks are in the World Series. It's a shock. No one really expected them to be there. It's certainly not at the beginning of the playoffs. Maybe even going back to the beginning part of the season, though, they were an intriguing team, had some young pieces, had made some interesting trades, and so there was a potential for them to get there. But throughout a lot of the season, they had some good stretches. They also had some really awful stretches. And they were able to finish in a positive enough to make the postseason and then make a lot of noise and get hot when it counted. And it always, when a team like this, a Cinderella story happens, it kind of comes back to the point of just get in. Just get in. It's all that matters because this postseason, it's just way too random. More than any other sport, there's just way too much randomness that happens in this game. And so I'm wondering where you stand on that. How do, as a team, is it just simply taking that we're trying to win 54.5% of the time or whatever it is and, hey, we'll just take our chances? Is, is, it, is it deeper than that? I mean, how, how do you assess the just-get-in mentality? Is it, is it really just as basic as that? I, I think that's how a lot of teams are, are operated. And even the Mariners didn't make the playoffs, but Jerry Depoto, their GM, did take a lot of heat for publicly stating their goal of trying to win 54% of the games is essentially never go in too much in any one year, get as many shots at this randomizer machine that is the postseason. And uh, it is, it does make sense. 
it's also really hard to win 54% of games or 10 years. Like I looked that up and it's only, it's, there's only five teams, Dodgers, Yankees, Astros, Guardians, and it wasn't the I can't remember the fifth, but like that is a high bar to clear. <laughs> but yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of that. I, I actually thought the first round buys would incentivize teams to chase those a little more, but I don't think we've really seen that at the last couple of trade deadlines too much. Uh, no, we no, have no one is, wants the buy. <laughs> no one wants. <laughs> and maybe after we saw 300 win teams go down that had those buys, there'll be even less incentive to chase them. Uh, but yeah, it does seem like teams are just trying to move to that, just be slightly above average for an extended period. And I think we've heard, you know, Guardians talk about, uh, or a lot of smaller markets talk about sustaining competitiveness. And this is, and this was even before the Tooks or wild cards. And it goes to that, uh, you know, the crazy randomness of the postseason. I was just, I'm actually writing a piece about this for tomorrow. And I was looking at uh, one seeds advance to the Super Bowl, like 53% of the time. NBA finals, it's closer to 58. And in the World Series, it's 41% wild card era. So it is, you're not seeing the best teams advance as much. And, uh, you know, look, the Diamondbacks, uh, they play better than anyone in October. They're, uh, you look at Carroll and Alec Thomas and and Fott and uh, Gabriel Moreno, and they're going to be a really good team for a long time. But the Cinderella, and we all love, you know, as Clevelanders, we love Cinderella stories. Uh, but if everyone in the dance is like a Cinderella, or after the first round, is it really a Cinderella story <laughs> at that point? Shoes everywhere. How's the prince yeah. going to find who this... Yeah, so I don't. I'm a little conflicted. Where I do love a good Cinderella story, uh, but then you have a team with a negative run differential in the regular season playing for a World Series, for a World Series championship. Is that? Does anyone really believe they're the best team of 2023? I don't know. So or does that matter? Right. right yeah. Or does it even matter? It, it is ultimately an entertainment business, and they're just trying to draw people in. Uh, and the expanded playoff format has done a lot of good things. Like it makes. It keeps more fan bases engaged later in the season, and uh, you know, everyone loves a good playoff series. More people are watching this time of year than any other, and in a sport without a salary cap and floor, it is arguably the biggest parity driver, having more teams in the field. Well, so, I, I, I find it interesting because as an extreme baseball fan, and maybe not that casual person that they're after, I'm so much more invested in a Texas-Arizona World Series than I would have been Astros Dodgers again but yet the Astros Dodgers maybe it would have brought more casual eyeballs maybe it would have stole more segments on Sports Center. what's more important is it to put on a, a good show because I think because these two teams are so very different between Texas and, and the Diamondbacks can make for some very interesting games and some I, I think some fun elements of this would that have been better to have that or the, the this the matchup we've seen a lot but there are some talented players here, and, and the teams are probably overall better. What, what's more important? Do you cater to the fans that are always there, but they're going to be even more invested now because they're just, it's fresh blood. We're interested. This is new teams. It's a new playoffs, new baseball this year. What, what is truly important? Yeah, I, I, the ratings, I'm sure, will not be good for this. But amongst people that really love baseball and follow it. The variety is probably good to see different teams, um, to, to your point. Uh, I mean, I've seen, like, my old boss, Nate Silver, was kind of trashing this matchup. And, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and he wants the playoffs to contract. 
and there's certainly some people uh, you know, that that feel that way. But uh, yeah, just, just make it college football. There's six yeah, teams. That just can have win a, it. a bowl it. system. There should just be a bowl system. That's it. Uh, yeah, I mean, on one hand, we always complain about oh, it's Red Sox Yankees Sunday night baseball every night, uh, and it's Astros in the <laughs> the ALCS every year. The one team immune from being disrupted in the postseason generally. And then we get this variety, and then some of us complain about that too. So we're just never going to be mm. be happy. I, maybe it is. I don't know. I feel like it's almost two different seasons. The regular season values there really isn't parity in the regular season. The we kind of by the end of the six month marathon, the best teams are usually, you know, those with ninety five plus wins, and just like the best players, uh, their performance over that long haul, we know who they are. Uh, and then we have the second season, which roster construction sure. is part of it. Like the Phillies, I think, really were built better for postseason play than regular season when you can shed those weakest starting pitchers and that sort of thing. Uh, and then just the element of if your best stretches. It, it really is two different things. And I guess I'm just wrestling with, should is it okay to put all the value in October or most of it? Or should we treat these two different seasons differently? Uh, so that's what I'm kind of conflicted with. On on one hand, I like the variety. On the other hand, when people are like praising it as parody, I feel like it feels a little manufactured. Like, well, of course you're going to have parody when each series is like a coin flip and it completely and the game is so much different than how it's played in, in the regular season. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what I'm no, kind of it, conflicted it, with. It does, but also the sport lends itself to more randomness. And I, just as we were talking about it, I'm wondering. Compared to the NFL, if you're having a, a team that wins 13 or 14 regular season games, and then you have another one that wins 9 or 10, surely one game, maybe it goes either way. But still, the, the odds still favor the team that's much, much better. And I'm wondering, is the difference between like the upper-tier teams in the NFL and the teams that are in the middle, it could, could that be greater in certain seasons than a team like in baseball, when you're looking at 26 different players on the field, you know, one player could be great. Like basketball, LeBron James steps on the court, definitely got a chance to win that game because you got LeBron James no matter what he's surrounded by. But in in baseball, Mike Trout is not having tons of postseason success. Shohei Otani is amazing, but he's not single-handedly lifting the Angels to the postseason when he's healthy. And so I'm wondering, is there just less that separates the top uh, upper echelon teams in baseball from like an 80-whatever-win Diamondbacks team? And that lends itself to some of Not only that, but seven games, pretty much anything can happen between these two teams. Yeah, uh, yeah, certainly the nature of the games is so different. I mean, and, you know, Patrick Mahomes was taking every snap in a playoff game or regular season game, essentially, and LeBron James's usage isn't going to be that different in the playoffs regular season, but uh, it's it's not just that Bryce Harper can only bat once every nine times. It's also that, uh, you know, Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola combined for like, what is it, you know, 28% of regular season innings for the Phillies. And then in the playoffs, it's 50%. So the games the games are different and that it's more of a coin flip in baseball. And then certain teams are built better for a game that, that changes. Uh, it, it, I think to your point, it's like we never complain when there's an NFL upset. Everyone is generally like kind of enthusiastic about it. Like, oh, that was crazy. Or, uh, But in, I think it's because the sports don't really change. It is... Mahomes, it is less of a coin flip. It feels like a true upset. Where in baseball's playoff, I think it's a little bit well. Yeah, anyone can win a small series. So, I mean, that's 
I, I, I think it goes back to that Cinderella point I'm trying to make. It, it feels a little less mm. upsetty because yeah. it is just a giant randomizer machine, less so than the other playoff formats, just because of the nature of the sport, as you articulated with Tani and Trout only having limited impact. and So I'm very conflicted about all this, It's uh, especially as a, someone who grew up you know, always rooting for underdogs. Yeah. Uh, I, I do. Uh, and, yeah, the... You want to give every fan base some element of hope. And I do think the expanded playoff, you're looking at teams that each lost more than 100 games two years ago, and now they're in the World Series. And I think that is a is a good thing. If you're a fan in Pittsburgh, you're a fan in right. uh, you know, Kansas City or wherever. So that's a lot of like, on, on this hand and then on the other hand, sentiment. But that's how I feel. I don't really know how to feel about this. So maybe I'm just going to enjoy it. Yeah, it just that's, we don't have to think games. too much into it. It's yeah. not our job to figure that out. It's our job to to enjoy it and explain it and maybe realize some of that enthusiasm. And I'm not saying I have the answer as far as like, uh, no, it's definitely because the upper echelon teams are closer to the middle. I don't know. I'm just asking the question. But I'm thinking about who are the MVP candidates every year. It's the guys that are like up around six wins, seven wins, maybe wins above replacement. And what's a league average player like two, two and a half? So. We're talking about four, maybe five wins separating those two t- two tiers of players. I got to imagine it's a lot different in the NFL. Com- you know, Patrick Mahomes, what does he do for your team compared to a league average starting quarterback? It probably limits them significantly just by that yeah. one player. Uh, so it's definitely different sports, and you and I are gonna not going to sit here and come up with all the answers. But it's funny we talk about these two teams being underdog Cinderella's we are talking about the Texas Rangers that spent like 55 billion dollars right a couple of off seasons ago <laughs> and just completely remade their whole middle infield so this just means every team now takes the 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 road where they just sign a bunch of free agents now right that we're back into that category is that what we've learned from the Texas oh, Rangers oh yeah uh <laughs> every market is gonna be uh totally spending 300 million dollars on that I mean, I do think the Rangers, I, I did write about this earlier this week, like what can we learn from either of these teams, if anything, that, or what could MLB teams learn from these roster constructions? And uh, I mean, just to the point about the 50, 54% mark, like I think the the Simeon Seeger, Valdi signings and, you know, hit the ground worked out for a team that's trying to go from Below average is slight, slightly below or slightly above. They make the most impact there. Like these signings would have, uh, you know, the Dodgers could have done this and they win 100 and they go from 108 to 116 wins and they still lose the first. But if you are, if you're moving the needle from slightly to below, slightly below to slightly above average, I think that's where the Rangers model makes some sense and the Phillies too. Like, okay, yeah, these impact guys can have a huge, can provide a huge swing in our outcome. Uh, and a few wins here can really can uh, gets us into the playoff, and then as we know, anything can happen. Where you know, I'm sure the Dodgers are going to try to get Otani, and he'll help their chances too. But he'll make less impact there on postseason outcomes than if he's going to a team that you know is expected to win 48 percent of games, and they add Otani, uh, which I guess is sort of what the Angels were trying to do, and it just didn't quite work out there. <laughs> That's uh, a different animal. They're they're cursed there yeah. or something. I don't know. But there's also just limited amount of star impact free agents too. So even if everyone was willing to throw uh, significant uh, dollars, there's only so many impact players. And true. Uh, 
they also, and we have to look at, you know, it didn't work out for the Mets. They did the same thing. The Padres, uh, the Angels, it doesn't oh, work sh- out for everyone. <laughs> we only pay attention to the teams where we can take something away <laughs> yeah. from them. We ignore everybody That's right. else. <laughs> you know, free agency is, is fraud. I mean, there's so much risk and you're paying for generally uh, players in decline years. Although I do think some of the new, like what the Rangers have done with their, you know, the foam balls and the $15,000 pitching machine and Marcus Simeon talking about how it's helped. He had never done this before in his career and it's helped him prepare for fastballs pregame. He's not worried about hurting his wrist on, against 100 mile, you know, game balls coming up because he's hitting a foam ball. It can't be hurt. So some of these and a, a better replicating as most teams do now, you know, that the starting pitchers are going to face with, uh, you know, the, the new age pitching machines that replicate pitch movement and release points. So I wonder if that can help some of these players perform, can warp the aging curve a little bit. Uh, and maybe the Rangers have enjoyed some of that. But uh, yeah, they I know DeGrom's hurt, but Rangers and, you know, Phillies last year and almost this year, they hit on like, part of it is maybe good luck, part of it's evaluation, but they, uh, you don't usually see all these free agent signings work out so well. Usually there's a lot, it's a lot more hit or miss. So the short answer is, I think, if can we learn anything from the Rangers? Uh, <laughs> uh, if you're at the margins, yeah, go get that star player. But it's still really risky. Man. I, the, the safer approach is still to be, really be the Diamondbacks. Try to get this more homegrown core. Uh, well, yeah. Go get a Corbin Carroll. <laughs> go get a Moreno. Sure. And then supplement around them. So sure. that's a timeless lesson. <laughs> be a go, homegrown core. Just go get... Go get those yeah. sorts of players. Go what's the problem? Guys. What's yeah. the problem? Go it's get like those guys. It's like the the Guardians looking at a team that can't get pitching. It's like, what's the issue? Just develop it yourself. Yeah. It's fine. What do you, what, what, why? What, what, what's happening? Why do you have to pay so a premium I, in the trade market <laughs> when you could just build it yourself? <laughs> so I think, yeah, we always want to, oh, who can be this? Your, what can we learn from these teams? Are there any lessons to extract? I know I'm guilty of that. Uh, but I just don't know that there really are this year. Uh, they're... I do think the Rangers have a really good hitting plan, but a lot of teams are trying to do that too. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, maybe the answer is they're just just sit back and enjoy it because there's really not much <laughs> we can learn from these teams. Uh, Antonetti, what's what's your game plan this off season? We're just going to enjoy it. I don't know. We're just going to see if we can enjoy what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't have any answers. I think we we try to fool ourselves, Travis, into thinking we have like we can figure out this formula. We'll we'll get it out. We'll, we'll figure it out, even if it's. As you're talking about with aging players or pitching injuries, we tell ourselves in the draft that we can do a better job of projecting these players because it makes us sleep better at night that, to think that we, we understand this because there's something truly frightening about the reality here. We don't know shit. We don't know anything. That's the reality. We don't know anything. <laughs> yeah, we really don't because Adolis Garcia was uh, I know traded for cash and then he was designated for assignment by the Rangers and no one claimed him. I'm so glad you brought him up. How many young players? I thought of Oscar Gonzalez with Cleveland. How many young players that have all of these flaws are going to get a second, a third, a fourth shot because they're saying, well, what if he's the next Garcia? Yeah. What if he's the next guy that's going to blossom at the age of 28, 29, 30 years old and have his superstar breakout season at the age of 30? We might miss on that guy, so we got to keep giving these guys chances. Yeah, uh, I, that's a, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, maybe he'll be one of the. He'll have some impact on decision making. And I also and I keep seeing people retweet the Cardinals like official Twitter account 
we've traded adult, like all these trades. I, I'm like, man, no one's going to make any trades now because they don't want to be the Cardinals. You know, uh, they're afraid of these things. I don't know why the Cardinals specifically are getting this treatment, but it's been merciless. I keep seeing. Well, they've given away so many guys that have <laughs> maybe had it's just, so many it's great just the Cardinals like, posts. Zach Allen. Moments. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe they do deserve it. But like, yeah, that, the people are going to be terrified to make. Uh, and I did look at volume of trades made, and Mazalek is near the bottom. Like, I do wonder if some of these had made him more gun shy, uh, which is right. kind of. A, I'm going on a tangent, but uh, if you're looking at roster builds, it's like, yeah, you miss on these deals, and you're gonna you're, you're gonna face a lot of backlash. So, I, I mean, I do think one thing that we is also timeless is in the postseason. And this is sort of a Cleveland discussion, two point is power play. You have to have power. It's a strikeout environment. It's hard to string hits to singles together. And strikeouts only increase in the postseason. Postseason, as we know, is the quality of teams and pitchers are generally better. And bullpen work share goes up. So, yeah, I think Phillies have shown us that. The Rangers have shown us that. Uh, I mean, Diamondbacks, not maybe as much. But, but it's also a yeah. difficult thing because it's not just having power, but it's getting the power at the right time. Because there's a lot of teams that lose in the postseason that also have great power because they just had their power outage at the wrong time. Yeah. It's it's part of like the, the the crapshoot. Yeah, you got to have the good power and you got to be able to hit some bombs, but you got to pray that you're the team that's hitting them at the right time. <laughs> I mean, ideally, you're a well balanced offense that can do sure. all sorts of things. Uh, and that is a bit like a t- a good three point shooting team going cold in one March Madness game. Uh, but yeah, you, you still. It's another probability thing where, yeah, you want to have that in your favor. The the other thing, I guess at risk of going off on another tangent, is, uh, you know, Ron Darling made this point, and I've thought about this too, like, in the macro environment of the regular season, yeah, never bunt. Always play for the biggest thing possible. But I find myself in these, like, game sevens, you got a runner on second with nobody out, or runner, like, and, you're, and you have a lower, like, a seven, eight, nine hitter up, like, yeah, just bunt. Like I can't believe I'm saying this. Just so, and he's like these micro level decisions. The psychology changes, and that one run uh, versus no runs is so much more important in that frame. And it's right. I know I'm going against probably you know optimum probability of scoring chances, but I even find my own. But that's uh, but that's looking at bigger change. picture, right? Yeah. That's that's over 162 games. You'll end up more right if you don't bunt. But in right. a one game situation. There's a human element here. How much better do you play? How much worse do you play when you're playing from behind as opposed to ahead or something we don't know? I don't know how to quantify it, but does playing with a lead early help you? There are plenty of instances where it doesn't, but overall, big picture, could it help you? Psychology impact is interesting. I'm at least more than I was years ago willing to listen to some old school ideas, not because... Oh, well, that's just what they always did. But I, I wonder if there's some element still that we don't fully capture in those in those very small windows that we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, to bring it back to the manager, manager search, like, how would you handle this situation? How should we play this? Like, what is because uh, like in Toronto with a more inexperienced manager, it seemed like the decision uh, to pull uh, Berrios that didn't go over well at the club or the, it just didn't seem like it was communicated well and that sort of thing. Uh, and it wasn't explained. Well, I don't know. So how are you handling situations like 
playing small ball in the micro environment versus the macro. These are all things you want to have a good feel on. And uh, the psychology, like I felt like the Diamondbacks, again, there's no way to prove this, but I felt like the pressure somehow, even though the Phillies were a wild card, it felt like the pressure kind of swung on them once they fell behind early in that game. Uh, again, no way to prove any of this. It just kind of feels that <laughs> well, way. Well, hey, hey, this is fun. Yeah. But to talk about things you can't prove, Zach and I talk yeah. all the time about how baseball, that we have gotten so much better at figuring out who the best players are, how to quantify their total value, and that's great. If we're trying to make a, a trade with another team or assessing a trade, fine. But you know what was what used to be a lot of fun? Sitting together at a table in the you know in, in high school, we'd sit around and have these debates. No, I think Manny Ramirez was was greater. No, I think Jim Tomey was greater. And it, now we just go, well, let's pull up the Fangrass War. Here's the answer. Okay, on to the next thing. That's not fun. There's some. There should be some debate and some unknown here because that's what adds to the conversation and allows us to have totally fun shows. Just a couple analytic storks sitting around <laughs> talking about the gut, the gut feel, the gut feel. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, it if it's only analytics then the manager role isn't really that useful because anyone can read a spreadsheet and here's your, go over to pregame situations. This is when you pull your starter. These are when you should lift certain hitters against late game bullpen matchups. I mean, that really, you can write that down on a iPad or take it out to the dugout and just follow the instructions. Exactly. So I do think the gray area actually matters. Maybe it seems counterintuitive, but because we've the science of boiling down player value and you know splits and performance matchups is so black and white now or more so than it used to be that gray area does matter quite a bit i think well it's still a game played by humans and until it's a game played by <laughs> by <laughs> robots which with way ai is replacing all of us it might be pretty soon but until that <laughs> moment then I think there is going to be some some element of that gray area you're talking about. Not all yeah. bunts are created equal, just like these shows. Not every show is equal, and this one was definitely one of my favorites, one of our best. Always the case when we welcome Travis Sawchick. How can people find your stuff? What are you working on? What might we find over the next few days? Yeah, you can find me at the Score app, uh, which even if you don't really want to read my stuff, it is a great scoreboard browsing. NFL Sundays, <laughs> playoff box scores. Yeah, it's a great user experience. So go check out a go check out uh, the app, download the app, the Score app. A lot of thanks fun. for having me. It was great to be with you, man. Yeah, I, I enjoy this. We definitely need to make this more of a regular than once every year thing. But we'll figure out. It'll all be based on how you fare against Zach in your fantasy football. Got to keep matches. losing the Zach. <laughs> Later, everyone. See ya.